welcome to the Real Love podcast series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with some of the world's finest teachers and thinkers, all exploring Sharon's new book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Real Love is a field guide for anyone seeking awakened living in the 21st century. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please visit www.BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. What do true connection and love mean to you? What tools can empower you to embody that love? This is Susie Kessler, the director of Macomb at JCC Manhattan, our program for meditation and spirituality. And I'd like to welcome you to the podcasts of JCC Manhattan. You are listening to Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection, a conversation in honor of the publication of the newest book of the same title by teacher and author Sharon Salzberg, recorded live at the JCC on July 6th, 2017. Sharon and her close friend and colleague, James Shaheen, editor of Tricycle Magazine, discuss the new book. Sharon reads some excerpts, and there are wonderful questions and answers from the audience about the book, about meditation practice, and about life. So come with us on a tour of this new guide to living an awakened life, and be encouraged to feel authentic love based on direct experience rather than preconceptions. This evening was brought to us and co-sponsored by our friends and partners at the Garrison Institute and is part of our Garrison Talks at the JCC series. The program was also sponsored by Tricycle Magazine. Be sure to check back with us online for more JCC podcasts or come join us in person for our next wonderful live event. Thank you, Susie and Matt and Shira and everyone here at the JCC for being such wonderful partners. And as, as Susie has said, that this is just a, one of a series of, of talks that we've done. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about some other talks that we've done, you can come to our website. And we actually have them on our blog, uh, as, as this one will be uh, in the next couple of days. Um, I'm glad to see that so many of you know the Garrison Institute. The Institute, uh, we've been around since 2003, and we're dedicated to really harnessing the power of contemplative practice and wisdom uh, to build a more compassionate and resilient future for all. Um, we have many programs. One is a very robust uh, events and retreats program, and Jane Colini is our retreats director. She's here. We host a lot of retreats with some of the one, most wonderful teachers, including Sharon. Um, and so please make sure you take one of our calendars and some of the flyers that are out there. I also welcome you to join uh, our mailing list and check out our website. Uh, Sam Mao, who, who actually takes great care in, in offering some insights and, and some articles that we have on our website, on our blog. So please take a look at that, some useful resources. So I have the great honor of uh, introducing you to Sharon Salzberg, who is actually one of the 
board members of the Garrison Institute. Sharon is a central figure in the field of meditation, a, a world-renowned teacher and New York Times best-selling author. She has played a crucial role in bringing meditation and mindfulness practices to the West and into mainstream culture since 1974, when she first began teaching. She is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, and the author of 10 books, including New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, her seminal work, Love and Kindness, and her new book, which we're here to celebrate tonight, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection, published by Flatiron Books. She's renowned for her down-to-earth teaching style and offers a secular, modern approach to Buddhist teachings, making them instantly accessible, as you'll learn. She's a regular columnist for On Being, a contributor to Huffington Post, and the host of her own podcast, The Meta Hour. And uh, for now, I'd like to chain it over to James, the editor of Tricycle. Well, thank you, John, and thank you, Susie. It's great to be here at the JCC and uh, partner with our very good friends at the Garrison Institute. It's a great place. Um, as, as John said, I'm the editor and publisher of Tricycle, the Buddhist Review. And in case you don't know us, we're a quarterly magazine and website uh, dedicated to the dissemination of Buddhist teachings and values. Um, and we're celebrating our 25th anniversary. And indeed, Sharon and I are old friends. Sharon appeared in 1992 in the third issue of Tricycle and has been a supporter and contributor every, ever since. Uh, I count her among my teachers and, and depend always on her guidance, even when I don't follow it, <laughs> which always gets me into trouble, as I always say. Um, but we're going to start with uh, Sharon leading a meditation. So I'm going to turn this over to you, Sharon. Fabulous. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Um, you can hear me OK, right? The other thing that they always tell me is don't move the microphone. They always move the microphone, so I wasn't sure. I moved it out of range. So why don't, we're just going to sit for a few minutes to more fully arrive. So you can just like take a deep breath. <laughs> Settle your attention into your body. It's fine to close your eyes or have them partly open, whatever you like. And then let your breath become natural. And this will lead us into this moment and into a state of balance. Because the breath, after all, is happening anyway. All we need to do is feel it. Just this one breath. You don't need to worry about what's already gone by, anything you experienced getting here. You don't need to lean forward for even the very next breath. It's just this one. Here we are. So thank you. Thank you, Sharon. So I've got some questions here. And after that, after we have a back and forth, Sharon's going to read from her book. And then we'll take questions from you, which we're both very much looking forward to. Um, I'd like to ask, uh, first of all, about you know Sharon, Sharon's recent book, Real Love, is the topic of our discussion, of course. And start with like how, how you look at love uh, in a way very different from how we're used to looking at it. Um, you talk about it not so much of a, so much as a feeling as, as an ability that we can cultivate. What do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. uh, that's actually a, a line from a movie. The movie is 
Dan in real life. I don't know, did any of you see that movie? It was maybe 13 years ago, something like that. Uh, my goddaughter had a little part in the movie, which is how I date it, because she was really a little girl at the time. She didn't have any speaking lines, but she barked. Because um, part of her, what she was doing in the, in the movie was trying out for a talent show, and her audition was barking, so she barked in the movie. Uh, and I saw the movie, of course, uh, and there was one line in it that really just captured me, and the line was that, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And in some ways, this entire book has grown out of that one line. Because, of course, love is a feeling. It's the feeling we yearn for, we are taught is essential to, to our happiness. But what if we thought of love not so much as a feeling, but more as an ability? And this really resonated with experiences I'd had, most particularly sitting intensively in Burma uh, in 1985 when I went there to do loving-kindness meditation, like in a kind of immersion into it. And there was just this moment, which I find somewhat hard to describe. I keep thinking that in words. The words don't capture kind of the immensity of the transformation that actually happened for me. But it was something, it was something really along those lines. I realized that up until that moment, I'd always thought of love as a kind of commodity, which meant it was like a package in someone else's hands. And that other person could deliver it to me, but they also might take it away from me. So it was a little bit like the UPS person standing at my doorstep and looking at the address and saying, no, nah, never mind, I'm going somewhere else. And I would be like, wait, you know, wait. And if they went somewhere else, there'd be no love in my life, and I'd be bereft. In contrast to thinking of love as an ability, which meant it was inside me, it was mine, and other people or situations or great art or all kinds of things certainly can enliven it and strengthen it and um, cultivate it and, or threaten it, but it's mine, ultimately. And that was like a huge transformation uh, in my whole sensibility and my emotional well-being, actually, and uh, degree of fear and, and so on. And so uh, when I heard that line, I thought, oh, that's it. You know, that really says it. And, and like I said, it's really the case that the whole book came out of that one line. You know, that, that takes me to the next question, which is really, if it's something that's mine and coming from me, I don't necessarily have the expectation of love in return. Um, although often, if we're honest, if we love someone and we don't receive anything in return, we're either hurt or angry, uh, and we feel pretty bad about that. Um, how can practice uh, teach us to sort of consider it something that belongs to us and that we're giving without expectation? Well, I think that there are lots of levels to what you're asking, and um, I think it's a little tricky to be in the domain of like unconditional love, you know, and and uh, leaving kind of the human realm of reality. I mean, of course, we would like to be thanked when we give someone a gift. We would like to have our care and, and concern reciprocated. Um, we would like to be loved in return. Um, that seems true, and it seems human and, and right. But the question, be and also kind of corollary to that is, can we sit with our feelings of sorrow and feeling ripped off and 
um, hurt and betrayal or whatever and uh, love ourselves regardless of those feelings, you know, not not say, well, I blew it, I'm a failure, I failed the love quiz or, you know, uh, I read the book five times or even worse, I wrote the book. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make it, you know, like, uh, it's not like that, you know, we feel what we feel and, and we need to be present with what we feel, but we also can bring wisdom forth into any situation, even if it's hurtful. It's like, of course I would like this in return, and how much am I gonna invest in things that are actually outside of my control? How much do I blame myself for something I could never have stopped? Um, you know, when do I take something to heart uh, and get actually damaged by it in contrast to learning how to, you know, feel the pain of it perhaps, but have it pass through. When do I identify myself completely by the vision of another compared to having a sense of my own integrity? You know, those are all very real questions, whether it's about partnership or about um, anything at all. You know, uh, when our expectations are strong, we suffer because that is placing on the, the very realm we cannot control someone else's reaction, the world's praise, whatever it might be. Um, that's the arena we can't control. And if our hearts are set on having that be tremendous, you know, and everything we've ever hoped for, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Or sometimes it's working okay on Tuesday, by Wednesday it's gone, you know, and where does that leave us? You know, I, you know I've sat with Sharon plenty and I've gone on plenty of your retreats. So um, one thing I do notice when we do meta practice or loving kindness practice is that there is no expectation built into it at all. We're simply sending uh, good thoughts toward others without expectations. It hadn't really occurred to me until I read this that it that that it's just not there. I mean, the expectation is not there, and I didn't feel any such expectation with the practice. So that's why I asked. It's mm -hmm. a pretty amazing practice. Do you want to tell the story of your first meta retreat? Uh, is that how you I... came to it? Oh, I. Oh, right. Oh, okay, <laughs> I, I, I can say that. Um, I was very, very angry with someone, very angry, sort of obsessively angry. And um, I wrote to Sharon and I said, you know, I had a dream that this person got hit by a car. And Sharon just sent me back an email that had the dates of her meta retreat. <laughs> and so I was pretty sucked in. I thought, okay, because I'd always resisted the pure meta retreat. I thought I was kind of wimpy, but I certainly, yeah, I certainly learned a lot from that. I mean, certainly not having expectations <laughs> was very important there. But yeah, I just got a simple email, my meta retreat for the, I got the message. There was no, there was no other advice <laughs> or any advice at all, just dates. Um, there you go, well, but I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm gonna interview you. Uh, I think that's so interesting, you thought it was wimpy, and don't we? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I did think it was wimpy. I didn't understand what courage and strength it took and how powerful it could be. But I mean, I, I just thought this notion of sending everybody, um, unconditional goodwill uh, just seemed unrealistic and um, it would leave me open to to really it was a, a kind of fear of the kind of vulnerability that, that that I associated with it I thought it was unrealistic but of course it's transformative and and you incline the mind in a different way mm -hmm. uh, and you find yourself walking around afterwards seeing somebody and just wishing them well spontaneously you're kind of surprised at yourself like I'm not this way uh, <laughs> but all of a sudden I was a nice guy briefly <laughs> yeah. 
that goes away in a week or two. <laughs> you got to go back. You got to go know. back. You got to go back. Um, here's a question that, that, you know, we often hear you can't love another until you learn to love yourself, but that's not necessarily true, is it? Well, I was in this very room with Bell Hooks, um, and uh, she was, in a beautiful way that I'm extremely grateful for, uh, really praising my book, which she had an advanced copy of because she wrote a blurb. And then she says, but there's one thing you wrote I don't really agree with. Uh, and I had written something like, I think, saying um, you don't really have to love yourself completely, emphasis completely, before you can love another, even though it's sort of a thing, you know, people say. Um, and I, I said, I made the point, like say for example, through the Garrison Institute, I've been a part of several programs now, one working with domestic violence shelter workers, one working with international humanitarian aid workers. And I felt like I've encountered people who deeply love others and work for them and on their behalf in the most you know, awful situations. But if they don't really love themselves in the end, that's not sustainable. But I do feel they have loved others and not perhaps so much themselves. And so that's the, that's the awakening, you know, is that that part needs to come in too. And, and Belle, who's like, um, like I have a, a, you know, obviously a big background in Buddhist teaching and Buddhist psychology in which they are excruciatingly exact about words and usage of words. And she's the only person I've met who's more excruciating than a Buddhist. Um, scholar. I mean, she's a Buddhist, perhaps. I don't know if she'd say that, but she's certainly been practicing within that context for a long time. But anyway, so she made the, the distinction between caring for someone else and taking care of someone else and actually loving them. So I promised her I would think about that. And I, a little while later, was in Kentucky visiting her institute, and she brought it up again. And I said, I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> but I think my emphasis originally was on the word completely. I think that ultimately we need to be included, that love and care for ourselves needs to be included. We can't leave ourselves out totally or it will never last. And uh, there is such a big emphasis in Buddhist teaching on the motivation behind an action. Uh, you know, we can give someone a gift, for example, and the motivation behind the giving could be so different at different times, but the act looks identical on the surface. It's just like picking up an object. Like if I gave one of you this plant, you know, uh, and handed it to you, maybe I'm offering it to you because I like you and I want you to have it, or maybe I'm offering it to you because I see you have that really nifty-looking water bottle, and I think, well, hey, you know, maybe I'll give you the plant and you'll give me the water bottle, or maybe I don't like you, and I'll think, never live this plant. <laughs> You're just, you know, it's like the same smile, the same gesture. It looks just the same on the surface, but it's coming from a completely different place inside. And so from that point of view, uh, there needs to be a balance of love and compassion for yourself and for others, ultimately for your motivation not to get kind of weird and distorted, to become filled with resentment and be a kind of martyrdom, like, I don't deserve to have anything, so let me give you everything, which is not the same as generosity. So we do need to bring ourselves in. It's not always easy. Um, 
but I don't think it has to be the picture that's often painted sort of in uh, kind of more new age circles, you know, like I'll just work on loving myself. And somebody actually challenged me the other day about people they felt were kind of perpetually um, saying, uh, oh, it was Roseanne Cash, who I did another evening with um, at the Rubin Museum. Like people would say, I don't think I'll practice my music today because I'm a little tired. You know, I, I'm taking care of myself. Or I don't think I'll, I'll bother to do that or whatever, where it does become a, a kind of self-indulgence. But mm -hmm. um, even veering away from that, we uh, we work with what's reality, you know, for us. Like we need to include ourselves, maybe not with such a huge emphasis, uh, but someday. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense then in, in loving kindness practice that we begin with ourselves and soften ourselves a bit before proceeding to the next. It makes sense. Okay, so um, you talk a lot about including in our daily routines these practices to cultivate love or loving kindness. Um, walking around New York, what do you do? <laughs> uh, I mean, there are many, many ways of cultivating qualities like loving kindness and compassion. Even, uh, I think, a, a mindfulness practice will really help us in, in a lot of ways. One way it helps is by really showing us the assumptions that are coming up in our minds before we've actually said something or, or done something. I do tell a story in the book somewhere about uh, a friend of mine who, was, uh, who is a writer who was touring somewhere, and he gave a talk. And then after the talk, he went to dinner somewhere. And he was sitting in this restaurant, and this group of people approached him. And this woman from the group came forth. And he looked at her, and he thought, you know, she looks kind of like poorly educated. She's probably not really smart at all. And she said, I, came, I went to your talk. And his heart sank. He thought, oh, what, what's she going to say? And during the course of the talk, he had mentioned how when he'd been a younger man uh, reading Proust, the remembrances of things past have been a very important thing in his life. And uh, so when this woman came forth, to his utter amazement, she said, I really liked your talk, but I just have to say, I always find reading Proust in the original French much, much more useful or something like that, you know? So what are the assumptions? What are the projections? How are we seeing each other? What are the biases? What are the veils, you know? And so mindfulness will really show us that, and we can help uh, find ourselves in one another in a very different way when we can catch those assumptions. And even just learning how to concentrate, you know, being more present, actually listening to somebody instead of being lost in fantasies about the email you need to write or, or whatever else will help a lot. Um, and there are practices like loving-kindness meditation uh, that are particularly dedicated to the deepening of qualities of love and compassion. And so if you choose to do those, that is often involving bringing someone to mind and through the use of phrases extending um, a different quality of attention, like may you be happy, may you be peaceful, uh, rather than going, for example, through the list of someone's faults again, you know, where it's a, it's a practice of generosity of the spirit. And so we do begin with ourselves classically um, and move on through different categories of relationships till we come to all beings everywhere. So 
Uh, there's a form of it in sitting where you slowly go through that sequence. And there are other forms of doing that practice in walking. So I have a resolve to do loving kindness practice every time I'm waiting. And I count every mode of transportation as waiting, including walking down the streets of New York. So uh, every airplane, every taxi, whatever. Um, so as I walk down the streets of New York, I'm silently, which is very wise, uh, <laughs> offering loving kindness to myself and then those whom I encounter. Maybe I hear a dog or I see a person or uh, you know, someone comes strongly to mind. Just for a few moments, I include them like, oh, be happy. And it's my favorite way of getting through New York. I really enjoy it. Um, for one thing, what I find is that all the same judgments may come up in your mind, but you can cap it with a little loving kindness, like, that's the wrong jacket for this season. I'll be happy. <laughs> um, and remember, this is all silent. Uh, and sometimes I'm walking down the street, and someone coming from the other direction comes and gives me this really big smile, and I think, maybe they're doing it too, you know? We have like this little secret love club, or lots of people tell me they do it on the subway or, or whatever. It's fun. Yeah, I always like a story, if, I don't know if you'll remember, but uh, the woman who had a beautiful voice who worked in a local store. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's funny because there's some expectation. There was some expectation there, which always sets us up. Do you want to tell that story? Mm -hmm. Well, may you be happy too. <laughs> so this is a story that actually um, exists on my website and on Happify.com as an animation, and I think it is just the cutest thing in the world because. Um, in the first animation, uh, in, in that animation, I have a few up. Um, everyone is a dog, including me. So see this dog's mouth moving and my voice is coming out of it? I just think it's so cute. So uh, this is the story. I uh, live in Massachusetts, but I try to have a sublet apartment in New York City. And um, two sublets ago, uh, I was living in a place, and I have a writer friend who was living in the same neighborhood. And he showed me a copy of his manuscript one day. And in the manuscript, he talked about often going into the same corner grocery store and usually seeing the same woman working behind the counter and having very little impression of her, even though he saw her most days. Maybe a slight, slight impression that she wasn't that happy, but very slight. He realized he was like completely indifferent to her. And it was so shocking to him that he was treating another human being that way, like really looking through them instead of at them. The way he put it was, she might as well have been a cash register with arms. And so he determined he was gonna go into the store and he was gonna pay complete attention to her. He was really gonna look at her. So he went into the store doing that and the first thing he noticed was that she was singing along to a song playing on the radio and that she had an exquisitely beautiful voice. So he said, wow, you have such a beautiful voice. And she lit up, and she gave him this big, radiant smile. So I was reading that, and I thought, oh, I know just who he's talking about. I go into that store all the time, too. I don't pay any attention to her, either. <laughs> Except maybe I have the slight impression that she's not that ha happy, really, you know? So I thought, OK, I'm going to go into the store. 
And you can't really go in and say, I read you have a really beautiful voice, because that's like completely paranoia making. But I thought, I could go in and say, I heard you have a really beautiful voice, because that might have come up in conversation or something like that. So I said, OK, I'm going to go into the store, and I'm going to say to her, I heard you have a really beautiful voice. And her normally kind of grim, somewhat unhappy face is going to light up, and she's going to give me a big, radiant smile. So. I went into the store, and the first thing I noticed was that she was already lit up and looking radiant. I thought, oh, OK. <laughs> um, and I realized at that point, like, I didn't have a clue who this woman was. And maybe I'd seen her once, and she didn't look that happy. And every single other time I saw her, I didn't even look at her, really. And uh, the whole point of the animation, the story, is how attention is really the ground out of which connection and love and compassion will grow. Uh, I find that in my years of teaching loving kindness, there are two major controversies. One is what James was referring to before, which I'd love to go back to, that love is sort of weak, you know? And the other is the idea that qualities like love and compassion can be trained, which admittedly does sound really weird, you know, like I did a course and I came out compassionate or loving or something. It sounds really bizarre, I know that. But in Eastern psychology or Buddhist psychology, it's believed absolutely these things can be trained. That, you know, we in the West may tend to think of it as like a gift and you either have it or you don't, but they believe that love and compassion are like emergent properties of how we pay attention. Are we really there? Are we open? Things like that. How many assumptions are distorting our perception? Can we let go of them? And if we pay attention fully and differently, that is the ground out of which these, these qualities will emerge quite naturally. And so the very definition of meditation is training attention, training attention to be different. And so here we are. You know. Uh, to train attention to be different is creating what we need, all that we need, really, for love and compassion to grow and flourish. And so um, that's really what it's about. So tell me more about love as a weakness. And uh, I don't actually think it's a weakness, but no, I, I, that, I but think that uh, wishing everybody well unconditionally and without expectation felt a little bit, uh, a little unrealistic to me. And it did feel a little weak. Uh, I mean, because we're so defended. You know, we're so protected against uh, extending ourselves in that way. And, um, you know, at one of the retreats, I remember somebody raised his hand and said, okay, if everybody's wishing everyone else well, I mean, um, you have uh, the hawk and the rabbit. Either one is, is hungry or the other one is dead, you know. And so it seemed, you know, the logic of it uh, made it, made it uh, also difficult. I mean, I'm over that, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, you, there are all sorts of objections, but then I think what was really interesting to me is like either you or Joseph uh, suggested to me, why don't you look at your resistance? The resistance itself, there was a wall of resistance, why? Um, and it was, comes from a lot of hurt, I think, uh, that we all can feel. Um, so it felt like a real risk and a, and a leap to do something like that, but it's so transformative. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, it requires diligence and application and one is not transformed for good. You know, uh, we start facing all of the difficulties in our life, lives again, and we become defended again. But it is an amazing thing. That's why I asked you about 
practicing uh, loving kindness around town, standing on a subway platform and wishing people well. And after you do it, there's certain momentum builds and you actually start to, to have feelings uh, that you're unaware of. And all of a sudden you spontaneously wish someone well and you're very, very surprised and it's a very good feeling. Sometimes though, I mean, I took uh, the advice, your advice and I began doing this around town and the neutral person in my life was the doorman at our office building. So I made an attempt on a daily basis to smile and say hello. Well, then he started talking to me. And I was in a hurry trying to get up to the office, and he started talking to me. And I thought, this is backfiring. You know, he's <laughs> going to be my friend now. <laughs> I need a boundary. Um, but I realized, in retrospect, though, I mean, what I finally came to is that as soon as he start, starts talking, I stop paying attention. So I'm not following through. So I realized there was a certain amount of follow through. And when I did pay attention, the conversation has turned out to be quite brief. Um, mm -hmm. So there are all sorts of surprises when you do this practice. I mean, it's a very rich practice, um, and it's one that I was not inclined to do until I got that email from you, which was like a slap in the face, um, which was a good slap in the face, I suppose. <laughs> but it, it, it turned out to be very good. My, my cynicism was really, I realized, a defense. Mm -hmm. you know? um, but it's a powerful practice. Yeah, it is a powerful know? practice. And uh, to go back to what you had asked earlier, the thing about no expectations is really true. It, it speaks to the motivation, you know, because um, not only are there usually expectations, there's usually a lot of self-judgment. Um, if my loving kindness were strong enough, you'd heal. If I uh, did it in the right way, you would change your mind, you know, or um, that's what I mean by, you know, we can, we can do so much in terms of changing the field of motivation out of which we tend to work. And in fact, that's ex very specifically the way loving kindness meditation is supposed to work, that um, if you have, for example, largely been motivated by fear in what you do or what you say and what you don't say or do, which is another kind of action, and you do that practice, it's said that over time, you will largely be motivated by a sense of connection. <laughs> You know, that doesn't determine what you'll do, which is another kind of myth, that you'll always be nice and give away everything and, you know, let somebody move in or whatever. Uh, it's not determining what you'll do, but it determines the whys of our actions. You know, why, W-H-Y, of our actions. Um, and it just happens, you know, so it's not like deliberative or studied. It's not like you... You know, you're being asked something and you think, damn, you know, I did that. I just came out of that meta course, that loving kindness course. And, you know, what if anyone found out it was total waste? Because, you know, I didn't really want to talk to this doorman. Uh, but you just do it because, you know, it's like a human being and it seems right after a while. You're not thinking, oh, you're a bad person. You know, you better act like you care. You just do it, and you know, it's the right thing. It's so natural, and it's just those kind of shifts that happen. Right. It's so much easier to go around town having goodwill uh, as opposed to being frustrated on the subway and hating everybody. It happens, too. <laughs> you know. It all happens. Yeah, it all happens. Yeah, so I, I found it to be a very powerful practice. Um, Sharon is going to read a passage from her book. Sure. Why not? Take off these glasses. Is there no flight? I think there's no flight. Susie gave me her copy of the book, and I was like, 
obviously torn about what to read. Um, and I finally came to think I'll read this because uh, it's not that long and because it's, it's kind of practical. So it's right toward the end of the book. Um, well, thank you. Chapter 22, <laughs> Practices, The Many Facets of Connection. The writer Wendell Berry said, the smallest unit of health is a community. On physiological and psychological levels, connecting with others improves our health and state of being. We are better able to let go of stress, to feel supported, and to find a sense of wholeness even as we move through our busy lives. Sure, we may not all have concrete groups we feel a part of in our daily lives, but we can create the sense of support engendered by community at any point in our day, simply by learning to pay attention in a new way. Here are five simple ways to find a sense of connection and community in your everyday, regardless of whether or not you're with a group of people. One. Pay attention to the intention behind each of your actions throughout the day. If you hold the door for someone, do you just want to be polite? Or are you expecting validation? Not every intention will be so concrete. So be mindful of more elusive expectations or desires that may fuel your behavior. Two, as you go about your day, make eye contact with people you encounter and give them a smile, I should say. This is context dependent. <laughs> they may not see you. They may not smile back, but you may make someone's day. Three, resolve to forgive yourself each and every time you make a mistake or forget something. By cultivating kindness and self-examination internally, you'll be better prepared to act with awareness in your relationships with others, even those with whom you don't actually engage. Four, before eating a meal, take a few breaths and reflect on the extended community that was involved in bringing the food to your table. There were the farmers who grew the food and the farm owners who employed those workers. There were the people who transported it and stored it. There were those who sold it in the grocery store. The list goes on. Five, as you practice bringing awareness to each emotion, thought, and experience you have throughout your day, there will inevitably be moments of greater difficulty, frustration, disappointment, anger, resentment. As these states arise, and as you may react to them as being bad, try to reframe your judgments into recognition of your vulnerability, your suffering or pain, things you share with all other beings. How does that shift make you feel? Thank you. Thank so, you. I think we're ready to take uh, questions from the audience. You might want to turn those lights back uh, up, actually, so we can see. Someone's going to walk around with the microphone. Someone's going to walk around with the microphone. And uh, can we turn the lights up a little bit so that they can see where they're going? Thank you. You just talked about forgiving yourself. What's the tip or trick for that? <laughs> What's the tip for forgiving yourself? 
I mean, a lot of these, I mean, this is toward the end of the book, right? you know, so um, a lot of that is practice, practice, practice. And we practice in all kinds of levels. Uh, from the simplest, like when we did that meditation exercise, um, the extension of it, which we didn't get into because there wasn't really time, was here we are saying we're going to place our attention on the feeling of the breath. That doesn't last long. Before we know it, we're way in the past, or we're way in the future, or we're judging something, or whatever. And then when we realize it, the teaching is see if you can let go gently, in effect, forgive yourself, come back and start again, right? And so it's almost like a muscle we can keep exercising. Uh, because the great temptation at that moment is like the great temptation we have when we make a bigger mistake or we've uh, strayed from our chosen course. Um, this is what it looks like in meditation. You know, um, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I got lost in thinking. No one else in the room is thinking. They're not thinking. They're sitting here in bliss. They're sitting here bathed in brilliant white light. Or I forget the color of the light. It's some kind of light people get. It's golden light or blue light or... Maybe it's white light. Whatever it is, they have light. I don't have light. I'm like the worst meditator that ever lived. I shouldn't even call myself a meditator. All I do is thinking. They're not thinking. Or maybe they are thinking. But they're thinking beautiful thoughts. They're thinking loving thoughts. They're thinking spiritual thoughts. I'm the only one who's thinking of like really stupid thoughts like, um, you know, why are they bringing traffic circles back into New England? It's the last thing New England needs is traffic circles, really. You know, it's like old England has enough traffic circles. Circles. I mean, this is really a terrible mistake. But I don't work for the Highway Commission anywhere. Why am I oh, I'm so bad? I'm so horrible, right? That's what we usually do. So not only when we get lost in that, have we added sometimes considerably to the time of the distraction, but we're so demoralized. We're so tired after that. We don't feel the energy to, like, pick up and start over. That's why we say meditation training is like resilience training. It's teaching us always how to begin again. And a big component in beginning again is being able to, in effect, forgive ourselves. So it's almost like that's the simple way, you know, like over and over and over again, we exercise that muscle. And then we're in a bigger situation. We've blown it, you know, we've made a mistake. Um, if you look at like the um, psychological research and self-compassion, where they say there's three components. One is mindfulness, being aware. One is basically being kind to yourself. What I just said in the end, don't call it, you know, like your anger, your greed, whatever took over, whatever uh, forced you. Don't call it bad, wrong, terrible. Call it painful. See what happens then. And then remember, this is part of the human condition. You are not the only human being on Earth who ever made a mistake. You know, and this should be, in a way, something that brings us closer together you know, rather than have, have us feel so apart. And we just remind ourselves again and again and again. It just gets easier. Mm -hmm. Hi. I first want to say, as a student of compassion-focused therapy and Paul Gilbert, I fully believe that it is a cultivated skill to both love and compassion. I just met Paul Gilbert for the first time. He's a lovely human being. Mm -hmm. Paul Gilbert. Um, 
he talks about the two psychologies of compassion and the skills to fulfill that. And so I'm curious if you would say there's a psychology for love. Can you tell me about the two? He, he talks about the two psychologies as one being a sensitivity, having a sensitivity to other suffering, and then a willingness and a commitment to attempt to use skills to reduce that suffering. Mm -hmm. And to hold those psychologies while you do the practices that are inherent to compassion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious, because when I'm thinking about doing the practices of loving kindness, to come back to, am I holding these psychologies? Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if mm -hmm. you talk of the practices of love, would you say there are right. psychologies of love? Right. I, I mean, I think there are, and um, I don't know if I could enumerate it in that way. Sure, I sure. think uh, quite a bit comes back to the first thing I said, which was that love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Yeah. And um, if we think of it as a certain feeling, first of all, we may be limiting ourselves uh, hugely because a lot may be shifting without a great rush of emotion. I mean, sometimes there's a great rush of emotion, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's not. Um, and uh, we have to remember, we have to sort of shift our worldview about what love is. Uh, there's a beautiful quotation from the Buddha who said, um, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. That free, that open, that unconfined, so that if someone were standing here in the middle of the room throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in the space for the paint to land. That's very different than a certain particular emotion. It's also very different, by the way, than a feeling of liking somebody. Mm -hmm. um, so love is not a feeling may be the first one. And mm -hmm. In fact, when I did this uh, book, um, I met with a lot of groups trying to hear their stories and insights about love. And I tried to solicit those things um, you know, on Twitter and so on. And uh, the first group that I met with, just to tell you that story, <coughs> this man raised his hand. And he said, um, most people think of a good relationship as 50-50. My dog and I, we're 100-100. <laughs> uh, and the last group that I did, which was a long time later, because the subtext of what Susie said was, was quite late with this book, and it was like a whole process. So um, the last group that I did was in Barry, Massachusetts, where the retreat center is. And it was like a resident staff and, and community around. And this man said to me, you know, my whole life I thought of liking somebody as kind of the expected thing. I and mean, of course you like people. It's ordinary. It's like kind of low level. But loving somebody, that is the rare, rare, supreme accomplishment. And he said to me, you're reversing it. And I thought for a moment, I said, you're right, I am. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's a way to love somebody, love everybody, which simply means honoring the fact that our lives are connected. It doesn't mean glorying in their presence or, you know, admiring them in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a way of loving everybody and not liking many people at all. So I said to him, you're right, I am. So love is not a feeling. And the second part, it's an ability, I think is very crucial because um, then it's up to us in the end. In fact, the, the other story about the book, another story about the book that I often tell these days, although not always, um, is that uh, I was in England when I turned in the book and um, 
uh, it happened for a variety of reasons that the British publisher ended up being the main editor, um, who's an old friend of James, actually, uh, who used to work at Tricycle Magazine. And uh, so she was the main editor on the book, and she did this really wonderful job, and her main critique of the book was that I hadn't really ended it. And I sort of, I told a story, uh, I mean, I thought I ended it, you know. I told a story, and then I guess I sort of drifted off into somewhere, the void. And uh, I thought that was a fine ending, but she didn't think so. And because I thought I'd ended it, it was a real struggle. And months went by, literally months went by, and I stared at that screen, and I could not end the book. And my mind went all the way into, like, complete satire, like... We've been on a journey together. <laughs> Remember chapter one, how our journey started? And then chapter three, and now we're at the end. Goodbye. Uh, I could not end the book. And then the presidential election happened, and I ended the book in 15 minutes. <laughs> I was at an event, and uh, a person I was with the day after the election, I'd flown to San Diego for this conference. And the day after that, uh, I was having dinner with this person, and he said, we were, this beautiful, we were in San Diego, beautiful restaurant overlooking the water. Like, he said, I got this like glazed look in my eye. I said, I've got to go. I've got to go write the book. And what I ended the book with, now I'm telling you the end, um, is if love is an ability, maybe it's also our responsibility. Yeah. Right? It's yes. up to me. Right. Uh, if love is going to be part of this uh, encounter, this conversation, this debate, then it, it's probably up to me. Yeah. And so that, I think, would be also contextual. Yeah. Thank you. That's helpful. Mm -hmm. Hi. This is probably a good follow-up to what you've just mentioned. Um, in issuing this book, finishing and publishing it now, um, and I think about that and compare it juxtapose it with the idea of the troll. Um, I'm not a huge social media user, but the viciousness, the anger, the it's just amazing to me, the lack of, 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 of consciousness and manners, just the, the, how vile people are speaking. I don't know if it's only online or if it's in person. I don't know if it's greater than it has been in the past. It seems that way to me. Um, so I wonder if you can comment on just the level, the intensity of our fellow citizens, our neighbors, <laughs> who are that angry? Um, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, the back to love for a moment in that context. Um, when the Buddha taught loving kindness meditation, he taught it as the antidote to fear. And so that's an interesting exploration because of course, in the presence of that kind of anger, we get afraid. I get afraid. Um, so again, love, loving kindness does not mean approving. It doesn't mean enjoying. It doesn't mean liking but it means recognizing our lives are kind of bonded together, right? That we live in an interconnected universe and that the kind of rigid sense of self and other and us and them 
is really what leads to that kind of behavior to begin with, right? It's like that woman who was like a cash register with arms. You know, you can kick a cash register and it doesn't really mean anything, but you kick a person thinking like a cash register, it means a lot. It means a lot about your level of disconnection and, you know, how far we can go when we don't recognize like the humanity of somebody else when they are like nothing or the other to us. Um, so there are big implications in, in all of this. Uh, but I still think remembering loving kindness is the antidote to fear. Um, there is a role for our not buying into that same kind of rigid ossification. Uh, it's difficult. You know, it's difficult to be in the presence, certainly to be the recipient of, of that kind of energy. And yet, um, I don't, I mean, I, in that case, I mean, if anything, then maybe we develop a kind of compassion. Because if you think about all the things one can devote a human life to, and you think it's that, you know, like, especially sitting at home and like typing that, you know, uh, it could be better than that, and it's not. And so there's a kind of compassion that can happen. But neither loving kindness or compassion ever makes us unwilling to fight you know, or to engage powerfully or have a boundary. You don't have to read all that stuff either, you know. Uh, that may be your boundary or, or for a time anyway. Um, and, and there's just a way in which uh, we need to know that, you know, very deeply, that we don't want to be motivated by the same kind of hatred. We don't want to have the same kind of alienation and uh, that never means we can't take strong action. I've been contemplating love is contagious. Oh, yeah. And I just wonder, why is that true? If you had any thoughts about that. Um, I like that. <laughs> love is contagious. I think sometimes, you know, um, we feel that impulse within us to be kind, for example, or to connect. But there, there's some kind of social stricture around it, you know, like, oh, people are going to think I'm whatever, or uh, oh, they don't really want to talk to me, or what I have to contribute to this conversation is so nothing, you know, it's so negligible, or even I can't do that much good, so I won't even do the small thing that's in front of me. And there are lots of ways we hold back, we hesitate, um, we don't have like kind of a full-on manifestation of what we're feeling, and then we see someone else do it, and it's sort of like, oh. And I don't even think it's cognitive, it's not like, oh, if they can do it, maybe I can do it, you know? But it's sort of reflective of that, um, and then, and then we find, oh, you know, maybe I can actually reach out to that person, or just say hello, or respond, or thank that person, or uh, smile at that woman behind the counter in the in the store. She's not a cash register with arms, after all. Um, and it does. It starts to, you know, it changes the culture often of of some some place. Um, so 
my question is about like repeated metta practice, so repeated loving kindness practice, and um, having been on some of these retreats that I know, um, like one of the teachers even made a joke like, oh, I bet you're sitting here thinking about every horrible thing that somebody said to you 20 years ago. That when you do this repeated practice, that it brings up all the stuff that I believe is referred to as purification. Can you explain, like, why does that purification come up? What are you supposed to do with that? Does it go away? Or I don't know. I just want to understand more about that. And I've asked it before, and it's, I'm just having a hard time getting it. Well, I, I think, you know, is anybody totally new to meditation practice, by the way, here? Okay, great. So um, this is like truth in advertising for you. It's not all sweetness and light. You know, like meditation practice, any kind of practice, not just loving kindness practice. Um, it's like deep introspection at the same time, you know, and so you see beautiful, wonderful parts of yourself that maybe you never guessed at or you're suddenly filled with gratitude or love or appreciation for something you've taken for granted or someone you've taken for granted. And um, a lot of us have a difficult time actually letting in pleasure. You know, uh, we feel we don't deserve it or we feel too guilty or we get too distracted or... Um, for some reason, I find myself telling this story over and over again. Uh, but it's sort of, rem or we have this idea of what should be happening, and what's happening is somehow not measuring up, so it's not good enough. So the story is about um, this friend taking me to see the cherry blossoms in D.C., um, which were in bloom. It was cherry blossom season. And um, I just thought it was, like, magnificent and so beautiful, like, you know, there's this concentrated area in D.C. with a lot of cherry trees, which have been, I guess, the gift of an emperor or an empress or something of Japan. And uh, it's just so lovely, all these delicate pink blossoms blooming. So I was standing there kind of enraptured, and then my friend said, oh, no, it's past the peak. <laughs> so I thought, I'm having a bad experience after all. This isn't good enough, you know, so... There are lots of ways we don't necessarily enjoy the beautiful things that are happening either, and meditation practice really helps us be more fully with those things. But they're not the only things that come up. You know, some of these very painful things come up as well, and we shift the way we are with those. Um, you know, instead of being so judgmental and down on ourselves and feeling like it shouldn't happen, we have much more compassion for ourselves after a while, but that's a training. So... Another story I often tell is about, you know, I did my very first meditation retreat uh, in January of 1971. That's when I started. And I'm still very close to a number of people that I met at that first retreat. And um, one of the jokes they have about me uh, is about this time, uh, the, the teacher was S.N. Goenka. And we went, I went marching up to see Goenka at the front of the room. And I looked him in the eye and I said, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating. <laughs> and of course, I've been hugely angry, but I had never seen it before. And it was very shocking to me. And he just laughed, you know. Um, so we see a lot of that stuff too, and, but not 
to just endure it or because we're bad, but to develop a different relationship to it, you know, and have more compassion for ourselves, which will ultimately lead to more compassion for others. And even neutral experience, the kind of ordinary, repetitive, routine stuff um, that we usually get bored at, you know, just another breath or, or whatever, we kind of wake up and we're much more alive to and we really learn to tune into subtlety and not be so dependent on intensity in order to feel alive. So everything shifts. Now, it's also true that in the course of practice, um, we go through phases. You know, there might be phases where uh, it's largely delightful. There could be phases where it's largely a lot of stuff that is painful. Part of what happens inevitably at some point or another um, is a kind of moral inventory. It just happens. Like the things you said, the things you did that broke the harmony somewhere that really harmed someone, it just comes back. Um, and it's, you know, the, the idea isn't to identify with it, like I'm such a horrible person and I always have been, but to realize, yes, you know, another beautiful quote from the Buddha is, if you truly loved someone, you'd never harm another. And very often, as we recollect these acts where we did harm another, we can feel the lack of self-love in there, you know, and it's painful. But the idea is to feel the pain, let go of it, move on with a kind of determination not to keep acting in the same way. And so there's this fine distinction that's made between uh, remorse and guilt. Remorse being the, the feeling of the pain, the ability to let go and move on, and guilt being more just like stuck there, you know, like I am just that person and I always will be which isn't useful. It's not skillful. So uh, everything is sort of an opportunity to shift the relationship to it. So, um, you know, purification happens when, you know, either you, your mind just goes into one of those phases where you're recollecting all the stuff uh, or a lot of painful things maybe you haven't been looking at starting merging. Um, it's inevitable. It's not forever. It's it's just part of the practice. and. Uh, I remember when I was sitting with my Burmese teacher, Sayadu Pandita, who was a very uh, fierce, um, demanding kind of teacher. He came to Barry, the Insight Meditation Society, in 1984 to teach his three-month retreat that I and many of my friends were sitting under his guidance, never having met him before. And uh, I just got into one of those periods where sitting after sitting, I would remember something I did, you know, sometimes a fairly long time before. I think, oh. And we were seeing him six days a week for these individual meetings to describe our experience. I sort of didn't really want to tell him, but it was what was happening, and I had to tell him. And he got really excited. And he said, does it go all the way back to your childhood? <laughs> I said, well, no, not quite, you know? Uh, but he wasn't like, oh, yeah, you really are a horrible person, you know? Like, it, it was like a cleanse, you know? So you think of it as a detox. That's probably the best analogy. Um, and it doesn't work if you, you know, you go through the detox and then you just say, let me do it again, whatever toxed me in the first place. Down here. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how your practice has helped you to process some of the difficult things that happened to you in your childhood? Um, and 
and how we can work with our practices mm -hmm. um, to love and forgive and um, mm -hmm. let go of suffering that mm -hmm. happened to us when mm -hmm. we were mm -hmm. young. Mm -hmm. What was the question you were going to ask me? You didn't ask me a question. Uh, we were talking about uh, precisely that, difficulties in childhood and feeling a subtle shame associated with that even though you're not responsible for what happened to you. And then the added indignity of somebody saying, well, that's good for you, that's a gift. So you, right. <laughs> yeah. you, you can say something about that. Actually, my publisher, um, this is like an intimate evening. Uh, my publisher said to me, uh, when my American publisher finally read the book, which was after the British publisher um, had already seen it, uh, he, he said, uh, he really liked the book, and he said, uh, my favorite line in the book was, and it was a line I didn't say, I was quoting someone else. <laughs> so I thought, okay. <laughs> so I said, this is an intimate evening. This is like true confessions. <laughs> um, uh, so his favorite line in the book, and actually it's a great line, I didn't say. Uh, it's Roshi Joan Halifax who said it, and it was something along those lines. She said, don't try to think of the traumas of your life as a gift. Think of them as givens. And I really appreciated that because to try to force yourself to think of something as a gift, which many people would have us do, feels like a lot of pressure to me. You know, like I'm not that happy it happened that way. Uh, but it was given and it also uh, was the fuel for tremendous growth. It didn't have to be, you know, it isn't always. Um, but that's, that's the process. So um, I feel like I have had an incredible uh, intentionality. I went to college when I was 16. I went to India when I was 18. Um, I came back, finished school, went back to India. Uh, I came back at the age of 21 and be, well, as a meditation teacher, because my own teacher had told me to teach. And um, she was a woman uh, who had gone through enormous suffering in her life. I mean, her name was, her nickname was Deepama, Deepa's mother. Um, and there's actually a book out about her, which I believe is called Deepama. Um, and she was a Bengali woman who'd been through a lot of suffering and uh, including um, two of her children had died and her husband had died very suddenly. He, they were living in Burma at that point. He was in the civil service and he wasn't feeling well one day and he came home and died that night. So she still had Deepa, her one daughter, to raise, but she was completely grief-stricken and she went to bed. She developed a heart condition and couldn't get out of bed. And the doctor came and said, you're actually going to die of a broken heart unless you do something about your mind. You should learn how to meditate. So she got up out of bed. This is Burma, right? So she got up out of bed and went to the retreat center. And they say that she was the the meditation room, the temple was like on the what we would call the, the you know the first floor. And she was so weak she couldn't get up the stairs. So she just crawled up the stairs to get into the meditation room and she practiced. And when she emerged it was like um, somehow that tremendous sorrow and suffering had become a force of compassion for her because she knew that anyone's life could just shift like that. And I saw her you know, for many years and 
with lots of people, and I never saw her other than loving, you know, because she knew. And uh, so I went to, to Calcutta to see her in 1974 to say goodbye, to come back for what I was sure was an extremely short visit at, to the States before I went to India to live the rest of my life in India. And uh, uh, my friend Joseph Goldstein, whom I'd met in India at my first retreat, had already come back. He'd been back for about six months. And Deepama said to me, um, when you go back to the States, you'll be teaching with Joseph. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. And then she said two things that were really amazing. She said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And that was the first time I ever thought of everything I had been through as um, something that I might utilize for the benefit of others. And then she said, you can do anything you want to do, which you're thinking you can't do, do it that's going to stop you. And I left her, we would call it a tenement um, room. I went down like four flights of stairs, kept thinking, no, I won't. You know, sure, I was, I was going back to India forever. And then I came back and uh, got, got together with Joseph in Boulder, met Jack and Cordfield, and it all evolved from there. And it was a long time later that I woke up and I thought, oh, she was right. <laughs> you know, so uh, it's some place there. Not thinking of this as a gift, you know, everything I'd been through, because I think that is really often too forced or... It's too much pressure. Um, but realizing, yeah, there's something in there, you know, that I can utilize, that there is a kind of, um, especially in a society that is so, so phobic about suffering, you know, there's something I find in me that says, yeah, there's a lot going on behind closed doors. You know, it's not all the way it seems. Um, no one is left out. Let's really see how we can come together. Compassion is the medium. You know, that's what we really need. Not this kind of stratification, like my life is perfect and yours is such a mess. And, um, so I feel it's, it has given me a lot of strength. And uh, I really lay it on my practice. You know, I think um, John was nice enough when he introduced me not to say she's been practicing for over 45 years. Because I find those numbers really alarming. <laughs> so, uh, but I have been. Uh, you know, and uh, I've just gone through lots of changes. And that's not, it's just doing the ordinary practice. You know, it's just day after day doing that. Um, and of course, there's everything else we can do in terms of healing communities and, you know, whatever we do in a full life of, of growth. But, uh, I really, I do credit my practice with, you know, what I've been able to do with my life. So do we have time for more, or are we going to wrap up? Take one more question. Okay, one more. I'll be back there, too, you know, signing books, if anybody has a question that they haven't been able to ask. Thank you. So... I'm very new to meditation practice, and um, you said something earlier about like through the everyday sitting that there are times when you can 
discover positive or beautiful things about yourself that you hadn't seen or recognized. So this sounds strange, but I can almost better identify or understand with this conversation about you know, feeling when you're suffering yeah. and yeah. extending yeah. compassion. I have a harder time yeah. understanding that other side of it. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could give me some examples of Sure. How that comes up, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I also want to say, you know, we don't pre-program it. It's like, I said all that because you don't know what anyone sitting is going to feel like, and it's all good. You know, it's not just the tranquil, beautiful, peaceful times that are good. It's all good. And a lot of times, um, as another example in loving kindness meditation, you know, if that's the technique you're doing, I've put in a lot of hours of doing loving kindness meditation and feel nothing. No great rush of warmth, no delightful breakthrough. I now love myself completely, you know. I've forgiven everybody, look at that, you know, nothing. <laughs> just like being there as best I can, letting go of distraction and starting over again and again and again. And it's only been later in my life, you know, when I go into that grocery store and see that clerk, or I make a mistake and I see how I speak to myself, or I meet a stranger, or you know, it's only in actual life that I see, oh, I'm different than I used to be. You know, it's not, I do sit every day, um, and I think sitting every day is a really good thing if you can do that, um, but it's not there that you'll see the changes. You know, so that's an important thing for anybody to realize because that's exactly where we tend to look for the changes, and then we get very frustrated. Um, I do think sitting every day is good, and as I said uh, to this group I was just with, that also suits my mind you know, and my temperament. Like for me, I'm the kind of person who if I had resolved to sit three times a week, it would be Monday, and I think, well, I think I'll start on Wednesday. <laughs> then it'd be Wednesday, and I think, I'll sit three times on Saturday. You know, but every day is like every day. It doesn't have to be long, long, long periods. 10 minutes, whatever you're going to do, or 20, whatever you can do. Um, but like the everydayness of it tends to make it uh, the most uh, potent. And then if you're going to look for changes, and we should look for changes because you don't want to do something forever, um, look at your life. That's where you'll, you'll really see it. But in the course of the meditation itself, anything might happen. You could sit down and be really bored. And the next day, um, just filled with this sense of appreciation for one breath. I mean, our breath is our life. And it suddenly shifts. Not because you sit down and think, well, I should really be more appreciative of my breath. you know. But it just shifts. And it's like, wow, look at this. This delicate movement of air. This is, this is what life hinges on. Um, or, you know, different feelings in your body and uh, different sense of, like, kind of way forgiving yourself. Um, or see, it's like reframing different aspects of your life. It just happens. You make a shift. Like, one of the stories, I wrote a book called Faith, which was sort of my um, autobiography in a way. And uh, one of the things that happened to me in my childhood was that my mother died when I was nine years old. And 
uh, in the course of the writing of the book, um, I had a shift so that I realized, wow, she was like a 37-year-old woman who died, you know? And what I wrote in the book was, it's not really just my story, it's her story. And that was a kind of a meditative experience, you know? It was like, but it just happens. Um, I remember sitting in Burma doing loving kindness practice and filled with, in that case, I was filled in my sitting with this tremendous sense of love. And I think, I never thought I was capable of this kind of love. You know, but it just happened. It's probably happened after many a dry sitting, you know, it's like I just did it and did it and did it and did it. Um, which is why the long-term perspective is, is kind of important. I had one teacher, uh, this man named Manindra, because in living in India, like my early, early practice, uh, I mean, we were so free. Nobody had a job. You know, nobody was raising families. I, there were no computers. There were no cell phones. Um, there were very few books in English. But still, I had a hard time having a practice every day. <coughs> And I realized that whenever my practice felt good, I would think, great, I'm going to live in India for the rest of my life. And whenever I was bored or restless or suffering in some way, I'd get up. I think it's not working. And I went to this one teacher, this man named Manindra, and I described that. And he said to me, for you, I have one piece of advice. And that is, just put your body there. He said, every day, you just put your body there. Some days it's going to feel one way. Another days it's going to feel another way. You just have to do it. And every once in a while, like every month or so, check in on your life to see if you want to continue. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Join us this summer for the Real Love Challenge. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. May all beings be happy.